Hey everyone, before we start the episode, I wanted to share some exciting news. We have a YouTube channel now. We started posting our episodes with some cool images and videos, so you should definitely go check it out. You can find us at On Wildlife Podcast, and don't forget to subscribe. Now let's get into the episode. Hello, welcome to On Wildlife. I'm your host, Alex Ray. On this podcast, we bring the wild to you. We take you on a journey into the life of a different animal every week, and I guarantee you you're going to come out of here knowing more about your favorite animal than you did before. The animal that we're talking about this week is one that you've probably heard before. They also have one of the most interesting life cycles on the planet and can emerge in huge swarms. Now, because of this, they're not always seen in the best light. But once you hear from our guest, Dr. Gene Kritsky, I think you'll really start to love these amazing creatures. So you might want to invest in some earplugs because we're going to be learning about cicadas. Over 3,000 species of cicadas in the world, and they can be found on every continent except for Antarctica. They're insects that are closely related to aphids and leafhoppers. Most species grow to be around 1 or 2 inches long, and these animals like to drink the sap from trees and different plants. Now, cicadas can either be classified as annual or periodical, and this refers to their life cycle. Cicadas live part of their lives underground. Annual cicadas usually spend around two years underground, but there are individuals that emerge every year. Periodical cicadas, on the other hand, are a little more interesting. They can be either 13-year or 17-year cicadas. That means that these periodical cicadas only emerge every 13 or 17 years. The reasons behind this are really cool, and we're going to get to that in just a little bit. And to give us a whole lot of awesome information about these animals, I want to introduce you to Dr. Gene Kritsky. He's a professor of biology at Mount St. Joseph University. He's written or edited 10 books, and he's been studying cicadas for a really long time. Let's hear about how he got interested in cicadas. Well, it's a pretty easy story. Well, first of all, I'm from North Dakota. I grew up uh, with five heroes in my life, my dad. Roger Maris, Roger Maris, the, the who beat Babe Ruth's home run record with 61 home runs in 1961, the way you're supposed to with hot dogs and beer. Uh, and uh, uh, Lewis and Clark, I knew from a small age that they were two different people. And of course, Theodore Roosevelt, who was uh, who made the comment that if it wasn't for his experience in the Western North Dakota, he would never have been president of the United States. And so that's a fundamental background to, uh, to myself. And uh, I've been working on cicadas since uh, 1974 was my first project. That was a minor one, but I did my first big one was the mapping of Brood 23's emergence in Illinois in 1976, two years later. I had the good fortune of having uh, both as my advisor for my undergraduate uh, career at Indiana University of Bloomington, Frank Young, who uh, was just one of the most incredible individuals I've ever met in my life. Other than my father, he had the greatest influence on my life. Uh, here was a man who, in his 50s, loved going to work every day. And I was like, wow. And he was U.S. Army Medical Reserve. This was 1970, uh, 
of uh, 71. I had long hair, anti-war, you know, though. <laughs> and we, we hit it off like you wouldn't believe. It was just, it was amazing. And uh, I did a research project with him. I was his undergraduate teaching intern with him. And he was the one who, in the second week of my entomology class, taught, started talking about periodical cicadas. And I freaked out. Uh, I was born in 1953, which is the cicada brood 10 year. And, uh, but not, I was, you know, but in North Dakota, we didn't have any cicadas, periodical cicadas, that is. And then in 1970, I was in high school in Illinois, and the brood that occurred there was brood 13. They didn't emerge. So I, I didn't experience those first two uh, emergences being a cicada baby. But Frank was just amazing uh, in this. And so uh, I finished my undergraduate degree with him and then went to the University of Illinois, where I worked with Lewis Stannard Jr., and he was the Illinois cicada specialist. Ironically, I didn't do my PhD thesis on cicadas at all, but I got caught up in other things. I got, I, I did the cicada project for Brood 23. I got really caught up in a big, big thing on Egyptology and spent about three months of my PhD thesis time just in the library, pulling every book off the shelf at the University of Illinois, which is one of the large, is the lar- well, probably the largest university library now in the country. It's 14 million volumes and it's a, a repository library. And I just sat there on the floor in front of the Egyptology stacks, moving slowly down, pulling everything off, looking for anything related to insects. And as I said earlier, Gene is a biology professor at Mount St. Joseph University. He's done a lot of research there with cicadas. And I came here in part because we had a really nice history of cicadas here. I say this not that not just there were three things that drove me to Cincinnati. One, trilobite fossils. I love fossils. I teach a course in dinosaur biology, for example, uh, in addition to my other loves. I collected fossils when I was a kid in, in North Dakota and Montana. I love that. Major League Baseball was here. <laughs> so that was it. And, and then uh, periodical cicadas. There were two established broods in the area. And, and being here since 1983, I'm lucky. I look at everybody in the greater Cincinnati area, the Cincinnati, northern, southeastern Indiana, northern Kentucky as part of my lab team. Uh, The Brood 10 emerged about four years after I'd been here, and I had hundreds of people calling my cicada hotline to tell me where they were seeing the cicadas. Even got a few obscene calls once in a while, but that's that's par for the the course. And then uh, uh, Brood uh, 14, our second brood that I was expecting, came out in 1991, and that was great. He told me about a really interesting lab he did with his students as well. I decided to have them read a paper by Monty Lloyd and Joanne White. Monty Lloyd was an incredible individual, one of the great cicada researchers from the uh, late 20th century, died uh, around 20 years ago now. The paper in there, what he did, and he and Joanne White did, was they went out and dug up cicada nymphs at different times and found a growth difference between 13 and 17 year cicadas. You know, there's two life cycles of cicadas, 13-year cicadas and 17-year cicadas. And so I had the students read this paper. And I said, now, if we're going to go out and dig up cicadas today at the orchard, we had a, a small apple orchard at the university, at the at, at the uh, college at the time. We didn't become a university until a few years later. Uh, I said, at what stage would they be in? Four years. And to make it really dramatic, I, didn't, I want you to put your prediction on a piece of paper, throw it for a note card. I want you to put that in an envelope, seal it, and sign the seal. And then we went to the grounds, uh, maintenance shed, and uh, we got shovels, went to the orchard, and we dug up cicadas. And they were bigger than they were supposed to be. Now, in that paper, Monty Lloyd said, it turns out the difference that we're, they were talking about is that 13-year cicadas grow faster in the first five years of life underground than do 17-year cicadas. And he, uh, he, actually, he and Joanne actually said in the paper, if they should grow faster or molt one extra time that first five years, they should come out after 13 years, four years in a schedule. So here it is, 1991. 
Brood 10 was expected to emerge in 2004. So if Monty Lloyd was right, they should come out in the year 2000. I had nine years to wait. And telling kids in 1991, you know, the kids are going to come out in nine years is like saying, don't smoke, you might get cancer. No, it's just, it didn't resonate. But every year in my entomology class, and I, that alternates with my evolution class, I'd go to evolution. We'd always go back to the orchard and we'd dig up cicadas and we're monitoring them. And so uh, in the fall of 1999, I presented a paper at the uh, Entomological Society of America predicting that we would have a four-year early emergence of periodical cicadas. And then we just had to wait. And they came out like you wouldn't believe. Not just a little straggler here and there. They came out. I remember they started singing. I received a phone call on my answering machine from some woman. Uh, I won't divulge her name. But she said, why are all the cicadas in my front yard? So I had two students working with me. And so I thought, well, let's go out and see what's going on. And by golly, they were all in her front yard. They were massive. They were hanging on the shrubbery, the trees. They were seeing, they were laying eggs. That was the first time that we had documented a four-year acceleration that was actually reproducing. I got photographs of them in mating and went back the next day. Her yard was, they were down a few houses down away. This whole, this whole chorusing center was moving down the block. It was like, what the? It blew me away. Gene started noticing that groups of cicadas were coming out years before they were supposed to, and he started to discover why that was the case. It was Monty Lloyd who asked, when I told him about all this, uh, uh, he, he asked if uh, if uh, we could do a little experiment for him. So my, my wife and I flew to uh, North Carolina, and uh, actually we drove to North Carolina, and we found mating pairs of brood six cicadas, which that's the established brood that's uh, for that year. And we brought them back. It was really quite amazing. I started dissecting. We started doing all sorts of things. We dissected. I took out the spermatheca, the little packet that holds the sperm and the female, and it was filled with germinating fungal spores. And Monty made the comment. He said, well, that's not surprising uh, because uh, normally if you want to see what's going on now with those that are emerging four years early, because they should have fewer. And so I only found two spores in one female. All the rest were clean. And that suggests, now more work needs to be done on this, but that's anecdotal evidence to suggest that by shifting by four years, they got out of sync with the fungal spore, with the fungal disease. You know, evolution's happening right in our own backyard, right here. That's so amazing that we can see this happening. Cicadas are also known for their extremely loud calls. Let's learn about that when we come back from the break. The science word that I want to talk to you about today is flagellum. A flagellum is a structure usually found in a single-celled organism. It kind of looks like a tail, and this tail-like structure helps these organisms move around in their environment. Okay, welcome back. So how do cicadas make those loud calls? Well, the, the noise, is the, the call of the cicada is made by the males. The, uh, the males have a structure called the timbal, uh, which is, uh, it, it's this membrane lined with uh, chitinous ribs that muscles, when they contract, cause those ribs to buckle and makes a little popping sound. And they do that hundreds of times a second. And then their abdomen is hollow, so it serves as a resonating chamber. And so one male can really put out the noise. Uh, these things. Now, the female uh, does not have a timbal, so she can't sing, but she does respond to the male when he sings by flicking their, her wings. 
the whole purpose of the singing course is, is, is well, it's, it's for sex. And uh, uh, what happens is males will gather, not one or two here, but they gather in periodical skaters, gather in chorusing centers and trees. And I've had the pleasure, my wife and I just bought a new house a couple of years ago. We, we, we bought it in part because we knew we had a lot of cicadas here. We actually inspected the trees. You can go back on the branches and see where the egg nests are. And, and, uh, and I'm happy, I'm, I'm tickled to say that the second loudest uh, chorusing I found in greater since I occurred in my backyard. It's just, gotta love it. Uh, so a male flies into the trees. Uh, well, they, once they emerge as, uh, and transform into an adult, they take about five more days to harden up and get ready, harden up their uh, cuticle before they start singing. They'll start singing. One male will hear another male say he'll fly into that same tree. More and more flying, so it gets louder and louder. And uh, uh, then as they sing, if there's a nearby female, she'll flick her wings. If he hears that, he'll turn, sing again. If she's responsible, she'll flick her wing again. They get closer. He'll sing a, a different song, move closer still, and then eventually he starts uh, a sort of rhythmic sound as he's tapping her with his foreleg and starts mating. If the male doesn't hear a female, he might sing again, or he also might fly to another branch. There was one afternoon, I've got a second story deck off the bedroom, and I set up a camera and it was recording sounds, and it was right at canopy level. So I was like 20 feet away from the very top of these trees. And they're all on the top, and you hear them sing. And if they, that for one pulse, a whole bunch would fly out, mothers would come in. And you know, that, that chorus is not a solid, solid, just constant. You'll see it sort of get really loud, and then it drops and loud and drops. And that's, it drops when the males start flying to other branches to see if the luck is better at the tree across the street. That must be so cool to watch. Also, many times you'll see a cicada's exoskeleton just hanging out on a tree without a cicada inside of it. What does that tell us? They emerge uh, from the ground uh, when the soil temperature reaches around 65 degrees Fahrenheit. And you give it a nice soaking rain, not a downpour like we've had a few days here, but enough of a rain that softens the ground and they start coming out in big numbers. And in many cases, you might, if unless, well, I'm out there walking around the night anyway, looking for these things, but a lot of people will wake up the next morning and see the whole yard covered with these little, these little uh, exuviae, the, uh, the empty shells, the cast uh, exoskeletons of their, uh, of their last immature stage. And there's a lot of biology in that can be studied with those things. You can take it, you can identify the sex, you can identify the species. It turns out there are three species of 17-year cicadas all emerging simultaneously, not necessarily in the exact same spot, but in many cases you'll find easily find two. Sometimes I've found three at one location. But uh, the uh, uh, you can the, the numbers you'll see right away. The first emerges more of our males than females. After about three, four days, and they come by equal in number. And then after about five, seven days, you'll find a few more females coming out because that's a 50-50 sex ratio, but more come out in the beginning than later. Uh, and that's beneficial for the population because uh, males aren't laying eggs. And so if you and part of their survival strategy is to literally overwhelm their predators to the point where they get tired of eating cicadas and there's still millions left. I, I do it. Well, if you think about it, I use the analogy. Uh, just imagine walking outside, and this is a plug for Hershey's Kisses, walking outside and finding the world inundated with flying Hershey's Kisses. If you're like me, you'd want to eat a few of these things. And you can get tired about eating uh, of eating chocolate after a while. <laughs> and for a bird, how many, uh, you, uh, our stomachs are pretty good size in comparison. A bird, one cicada is going to fill a little crop up right away. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's not like they're gonna be munching constantly. They will eat maybe a couple of them a day, but that's that's still pretty pretty rough. Well, that's one way to avoid getting eaten. 
And I wondered if that had anything to do with the fact that they come out after either 13 years or 17 years. There's a lot of discussion. I'm involved with some research projects on that as well. Uh, A leading hypothesis that's been proposed for many years is that 13 and 17 years being prime numbers uh, means that it's going to be very difficult for a predator to become synchronized with periodical cicadas. Because how do you how do you evolve there, evolve that strategy to be synchronized if you're going to be doing through intermediate steps? And so uh, it's going to be either one or seventeen, and uh, uh, that's obviously been very difficult. The uh, the cicada killer wasps, which come out here usually in uh, around here, they come out in early July. The periodical cicadas are already done. There may be an overlap of a day or two, but most of these uh, cicada killer wasps are going to go after the annual cicadas. Their predator-avoiding strategies are so unique to any other animal that I've talked about on the podcast. But how do they know when to come out from under the ground? No, I think it's, I think there's a good sense of genetics involved with this to a certain degree. There, there seems to be some uh, – one of the things we have, I talk about in my uh, uh, book, Critical Skate, is the Brood 10 edition, published by the Ohio Biological Survey, uh, uh, is that there, it seems like there's a, a gene or some kind of genetic switch that turns on a four-year, a four-year growth pattern. So the, if you want to summarize their, uh, their life cycle, it's N times four plus one. So if that gene is triggered, if that, if it is a gene is triggered three times, three times four, 12 plus one is 13. If it's triggered four times, it's four, four plus one is 17. And if it's triggered five times, it's 20 plus one, 21. And I have, uh, back in, uh, uh, now have documented this now in, in 2020 with cicada safari, we had Cicadas come out four years early. We had uh, Brood 13 come out in North Chicago four years ahead of schedule. We had Brood 10 in good numbers. That was expected. Had a few Brood 5 come out four years late. Interesting. And so uh, I, I, I think I may have misplaced. I said in, in, in 2020, we had uh, four year early Brood 13. We had on time Brood 9, not Brood 10. And then four year late Brood 5. But what really blew me away was the number of Brood 19 cicadas that came out four years early. That's a 13 year cicada that came out after nine years. So if that switch to twice, that's eight plus one is nine. So there's a pattern here that's consistent. And we see these four year accelerations. Four-year decelerations are relatively rare and don't really do much uh, as far as the numbers are involved. But we've now documented this with 13-year cicadas as well. It's just insane how that all works. Cicadas are also indicator species, meaning that they can give us information about the health of the ecosystems that they live in. Back in 1902, the USDA, uh, in one of their publications, talked about uh, the possibility that Brood 10 would be going extinct. They really made a big deal about 1919. Uh, in part because of deforestation. And we have had broods go extinct. Brood 11 went extinct. Last time we had brood, uh, brood 11 was in 1937. It went extinct in 1954. We've not seen a brood 11 cicada, which is one of the things I'm hoping that that your listeners will help us with uh, this year. Uh, this summer coming up, uh, we are uh, launching Cicada Safari uh, with a search for stragglers. And there's a two-prong thing. We want to let people who, who are listening to your, your podcast up in the Massachusetts area. That's where Brood 11 was very common and prominent. And I've got firsthand accounts from 1699 and 1716 talking about how loud the cicadas were. And all the deforestation, that was usually around, that was south southwest of the Boston area uh, where that happened. Uh, and uh, 
they've been they dwindled throughout the 19th century uh, and then uh, disappeared in the, in the 20th. And the question is, are he still there? We had people have looked again in, in uh, uh, 54, and they looked again in 71. But again, you can't cover everything. And so uh, uh, with uh, uh, Cicada Safari, we had 200,000 people download our app last year. It's up, it'll be up again uh, for searching for stragglers this year. Uh, we're hoping that some of these people will say, hey, there's cicadas here, and let us know. We've never monitored. We've never tried to monitor stragglers like this before. And so uh, that's something I'm hoping that uh, your listeners will help us do. So if you're from that area, make sure you check out the app. It's almost impossible for only a handful of scientists to be able to survey that large of an area without our help. And that's just a great way to get involved. Cicadas are also really important to the ecosystems that they live in. Well, they do a lot of good for the uh, the environment. Uh, they'll take it through a whole emergent cycle during one of the big 17 or 13 year forests. They emerge in the spreading. Uh, when the soil temperature is 64 degrees Fahrenheit. And as they emerge, they become this opportunistic food source for all sorts of things. Mice, rats, raccoons, birds galore, mammals. I've seen uh, chipmunks and squirrels eat these things. I wouldn't be surprised if deer don't eat these things if they, if they find one. Uh, and neither herbivores we're looking at, they're, they're eating these things. Uh, so all sorts of, of, of opportunistic feeders. That actually helps in some cases restore populations. We saw there's some anecdotal evidence that suggests that was found in parts of Indiana when the uh, we had a, a disease of infecting some of our, our uh, birds, of, uh, our predator birds, birds of prey. And, uh, uh, and uh, that disease lowered the populations, but we had a cicada emergence. So that meant there was more mice the following year. And so the fledglings would have more food sources that, that may have contributed to their bounce back of the population. So they come out of the ground. The holes they leave behind is like a natural aeration. In the hot summer months, when it rains, instead of all that water just you know, rolling off the, the dry, hard, baked clay soil, there's holes there. So it can get down into the roots around there. So that's, that's beneficial. The egg laying by the female will sometimes cause that branch to... Uh, break we call that flagging and it's looks ugly sort of like brown leaves and whatever that is like a natural pruning which turns out to increase uh, the flower set the following year so that's beneficial for the trees uh when the uh, cicadas die they tend to drop and get, gather at the base of trees where they give it some nice nice rain and warm hot summer temperatures it really stinks to high heaven and uh, all those nutrients go back into the ground. And studies have now found that that creates this wonderful nutrient cache around the tree, which is going to be helping to sustain the cicadas, uh, uh, not only in the future, but also help the tree as well. Uh, even the state of Indiana and Ohio now have been studying uh, the body weights of uh, turkeys taken th- during turkey season in the year after a cicada emerges, because it turns out the body weight's a little bit larger, heavier in the areas where the cicadas emerged. Wow, they help the ecosystems in so many different ways, some of which I never even thought about. Now, what else can the average person do to support cicadas? Plant trees, plant deciduous trees in your yard. That's that's a beneficial if you put a tree, let's say, on the southwest corner of your of your house. That shade will actually help lower your heating bill and your cooling bill uh, during the year. Create habitat for them. The, one of the biggest problems we're seeing right now with cicadas, and there are parts of Indiana that had big populations a century ago that are now nearly devoid of cicadas, uh, is the going in and, and subsequent clear clear cutting of trees. Uh, so we need to restore more habitat uh, uh, for periodical cicadas as well. And uh, that adds to your property value. As they say, depending on where you put the trees, can actually uh, lower your heating and cooling bills. So that can help the be- that benefit the cicadas and you. 
Absolutely. And I want to thank Gene again for taking the time to come onto the podcast. There are few people that are as passionate about their work as he is. And I hope this helped you become less grossed out by cicadas and more fascinated by them and thankful that they're around. I know I came away from this interview with a much greater appreciation for them. And if you're interested in helping cicadas, you should definitely look into downloading the Cicada Safari app that Gene mentioned earlier. You should also check out American Forests and Eden Reforestation Projects, which both help to improve the habitats of cicadas. Thank you so much for coming on this adventure with me as we explored the world of cicadas. You can find the sources that we used for this podcast and links to organizations that we reference at onwildlife.org. You can also email us with any questions at onwildlife.podcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at on underscore wildlife or on TikTok at onwildlife. And don't forget to tune in next Wednesday for another awesome episode. And that's On Wildlife. listening to On Wildlife with Alex Ray. On Wildlife provides general educational information on various topics as a public service, which should not be construed as professional, financial, real estate, tax, or legal advice. These are our personal opinions only. Please refer to our full disclaimer policy on our website for full details. Mm-hmm.